This is From Our Perspective, Voices of the Directly Impacted, a monthly show from Justice Radio here on WMPG with your hosts, Marian Anderson and Craig Williams. Today, we're talking with a very special guest, uh, my friend and comrade, Nikki Butler. Nikki is a formerly incarcerated woman from Maine, uh, currently working as a recovery coach with Savita Health. Hey, Nikki, thanks for joining us today. Uh, it's such a pleasure to have you. I really appreciate you making time and space to have some important conversation with Craig and I. How are you? Let's let's start there. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I, I can't complain at all. Life is like good in the process of hopefully buying a house and stuff. So things are good. Beautiful. I'm so proud of you. Uh, how long have you been out now? I've been out since 2019. So three years. It's incredible, right? Uh, I know from you, when I look back, it's like almost unfathomable how far I've come from where I've been. It's like a whole other life. Are you feeling that same way? Oh, my God. You have no idea. Never in a million years did I just never imagine that I would be living the life that I have and like experiencing the experiences that I have. And Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. Tell me what you're up to these days. What are you doing with yourself now that you're out? Um, well, I, uh, work a lot of hours. Um, I have a couple of jobs. I work at Savita, um, Longhorn, and then I cater, um, we have big caterings at Moe's and then, you know, like I meet with a sponsor every week. Other than that, I don't really do much. I just got back from the national harm reduction in Puerto Rico, just like experiencing stuff that I never have thought or thought I deserve. Yeah. And I'm just loving life right now. Yeah, so, so beautiful to to hear and to see. I know you and I go way back, you know, being in being in those cages together, but I'm always just, it's so, it's, it's so beautiful to witness folks that I love, right? Like my chosen family, people that I shared time with in like a terrible, horrible place, uh, get out and make it, right? Because like so often that's just not the case. I can't think of literally like the endless number of folks who come out of jails and, and prisons and, you know, die. Uh, it's a, it's a hard reality, <clears throat> like a, a tough pill to swallow. Um, but it's true. And so I'm, I'm really thankful that you're here with us and that you're thriving and that, um, you know, you're going to share a little bit with us today about your experiences, both leading into, uh, jails and prisons and, and coming out of, um, I'm really interested particularly, excuse me, in hearing about, um, your job as a recovery coach and, and what that looks like and what that means for you. Um, well, I originally, um, started out backpedal a little bit. I, um, started as a recovery coach and peer support for NAMI at the main correctional. So, um, I was just providing, um, support for the women there. It just like, and then I moved on to Savita and it just pr- helps me like stay sober. It like, I literally love like talking to these women or these people and like, it gives me like hope and it makes me feel good again. And like I'm actually useful in society instead of like always feeling like I just was a nobody or nothing. And like, I just love what I do. Yeah. It's a, it's a beautiful feeling to be able to get out and give back uh, specifically to folks who are still in. Right. So you mentioned working for NAMI uh, previously and, and being inside of DOC and working with the women there as a peer support specialist. I'd like to hear a little bit more about that some of the resources you were able to provide or some of the struggles and barriers that you came up against in terms of really showing up to support the women who are who are still in cages here in Maine. 
Um, so, um, I got never in a million years did I think that somebody with as many felonies and charges be allowed into the DOC system. There was three of us and we were the first formerly incarcerated to ever be allowed back into DOC. They didn't know how it was going to happen and like what, like if any like backlash is going to happen or if we were going to do stuff that we wouldn't in we were in there for um I left after two years and now because of it they're um having the men come in um we taught mental health first aid to um all the residents um formerly incarcerated or incarcerated sorry (laughs) and um we helped them get certified for that we taught firing minds it's like boundaries communications and then we met one-on-one with peer support and recovery coaching but we also did more than that um because like a lot because we are in the recovery field and we have a lot of lived experience we were able to step up and really help the caseworkers um, with resources for the women getting out that they wouldn't normally have because they don't really have that lived experience or connections or you know like all we do is like look to help people um all the time so we like have all these resources when you've been doing it for so long so that was one of the biggest blessings that I had is to watch people get out and actually be okay when they left prison because I didn't have that opportunity. Craig what about you did you did you have that when you were locked up did you have folks coming in and like supporting you and providing you with resources and and really you know supporting your your re-entry at all? Yeah, to answer your question, yes, there was folks that came inside the prison that was interested in helping us make a solid reentry. They were lacking resources themselves, and I believe mm-hmm. they're still they still are lacking those resources. But I also want to say, um, I want to say welcome home to our guests. No matter how many years we did, you still you still living with it. Um, mm-hmm. There's folks that I know that done did thirty years, and their family members are telling them to get over it. There's no way you can get over doing 30 years in prison. You can't get over doing a day in prison. Again, I want to say welcome home. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Craig. Yeah, I wanted to just touch a little bit on my own experience, too, because, you know, we were locked up together, Nikki. Uh, I remember the two of us getting lugged to SEG, right? <laughs> Throw, throwing down, fighting in the day room. But, like, those things just didn't exist, Right. When we were locked up, uh, they didn't have folks coming in and and supporting us with resources or supporting us like emotionally just to get through our time there. Right. Or I didn't I didn't feel supported in like navigating, you know, my own issues with substance use or or mental health. I just remember really, really leaning on the other women inside. You know, they were like the only source of support for me. And it's it's crazy because I've I've really made relationships, built foundations of relationships that have lasted for years and years with women that I met at the most horrendous time in my life. Like you don't expect to go to jail or prison and and find family. But really, I, I did find family locked up. You know, if it wasn't for having each other, we wouldn't have had anything. So I'm really grateful that you know, Maine is is thinking outside of the box and trying to employ folks with lived experience and and getting them behind those walls, right? Getting them to the folks who need it, who need that support the most. So 
uh, it's probably, you know, one thing Maine is doing right that that I'd like to give props for. But I think, you know, Craig is right. Those resources are still lacking across the state. Right. I, I've seen it in my work. I know you've seen it in your work. There's just not enough of anything for everybody. Right. We need more detox beds. We need more affordable housing. We need, you know, access to long-term residential treatment. We need more sober houses. We need more employment. Like, and I say employment, I say it lightly because like, unless that employment comes with a livable wage, it's useless, right? The cost of living is going up uh, so quick that, you know, folks can't keep up with that. Small businesses, especially in Maine, have have difficulty um, giving folks a livable wage, but it's important uh, specifically for folks coming out right? Like what are some of the barriers that you've faced in your own transition to get where you are today? So um, I've been in and out of the walls for about 13 years. Every time I've gotten out of prison, every other time I've gone back to hustling. This time I actually did my own work and got I went into a restaurant and, you know, like I wasn't getting any jobs because of my background. And like, I literally was like, I'm going to be a hustler for the rest of my life. It was very defeating. I kept applying for jobs and kept getting turned down because of my background. Um, I couldn't even deliver for like Uber Eats because of my background. It was really rough. And I walked into this restaurant. I had a huge smile on my face and, you know, um, I gave it everything I I had and they gave me a shot and so that gave me the confidence to walk into another restaurant you know because at the time restaurant jobs were the only jobs that I could get because of my background um so I got that job and they you know and because of that they now hire people that have been formerly incarcerated because they're like you just came in and hit the ground running like you had something to prove and I really did and I did and I worked my butt off 70 hour work weeks and 70, 80 hours, and I climbed up the ranks quick. I became managers at both of them, and I excelled. And then I got that job at NAMI, and it gave me trainings, the confidence to believe in myself, to know what I'm worth. And like, I used to always think, like, I'm always gonna, you know, for better terms, be a, a junkie and a felon, and a, you know, and like, nobody's gonna ever hire me because I have previous medical background. I was a CNA, a med tech was going to school for nursing before all this stuff happened and I can't do any of that now so I was just like I'm literally gonna live my life in a restaurant and that's not the case anymore and I know what I'm worth and I negotiate that and I know what I bring to the table and like it's it but it was really tough for me at the beginning until I got that confidence and until like I proved myself um, you know, with people like the reason I got my job now is like word of mouth and um, references. And I wouldn't have gotten that if I didn't have to fight so hard. But it's like a survival mechanism. I didn't want to go back to selling drugs so bad that I literally it was like fight or flight. And I just kept fighting for my life and to prove myself and to get where I'm at today. I, I definitely relate to that, like getting out with something to prove, right? Like proving our worth, proving our value, proving that we can contribute in ways that don't cause harm. And proving be that we just money and like, you know. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like proving by whatever means necessary that we deserve to, to live and not just survive. Cause that's what it was for me too, you know, uh, years on these streets hustling, just, just, making money, doing drugs, hanging out, you know what I mean? Trying to survive. And, and for me, 
you know, and I think for a lot of people, I won't speak for anybody but myself, but like it, it's trauma, right? Like I went through, I went through some things. Um, I had some things happen and, and it sounds to me like maybe you did too. You were talking about, you know, having some, some experience with like going to school for nursing and, and, and being a CNA and doing some of those things. But once you, once you acquire that label of, of felon, right. And you go to prison, so many of those opportunities are stripped from us um, that we have to really evaluate like what we can do within the policies and, and laws in the states in which we reside, right? Um, licensures that we can get or certificates that we can get, like some of those things are just not accessible to us anymore. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the things that might have happened in your life that brought you to you know, selling drugs to, to getting high and to ending up eventually in prison? Like, was there, was there a series of, of things that happened? Was it like trauma? You know, what is that circle around for you? For me, I, I grew up in a really um, emotionally and physically abusive family. All my family's uh, members were in and out of prison or um, selling drugs. So it's something that I knew but I always told myself I was never going to be like them. And I had my son at 16. You know, I put myself, I got my GED, put myself through CNA school, med tech. And then I started for my RN and I went to Chicago on vacation and I got um, sexually assaulted and beaten and left for dead. And it just broke me. I literally wanted to die. And my uncle had, you know, unalived himself with heroin. So I was like, you know, like younger, I've tried like the pill thing and all that. So none of that worked. And I was like, I'm just going to do this with heroin. The first time I did heroin, someone saved my life. And then it became like everything I had been looking for, all my abandonment issues. Um, like I finally felt loved. I had a best friend. It was like the craziest thing. And I just used to numb all that pain and not feel it. In tune with that, like my use, I had to start selling drugs to afford my habit and to still take care of my kid. It just, it spiraled so quickly. Within six months, I had a beautiful condo, a car, going to school for nursing, and I lost it all. Um, my house got raided. It just like being incarcerated. Um, and at the time, they didn't help with they didn't know how to deal with the whole opioid situation so literally I just kept getting thrown on no treatment no nothing and it just spiraled me from there and I just continued with it thank you for sharing so vulnerably and transparently some horrific things that you endured uh, not to take away from your experiences and your disclosure of them to, to us you know on this on this platform but I think more often than not, those those are the norm. So in thinking about that and thinking about some of the other folks I know who've been behind bars, there's a lot of similarities in our experiences. Like a thing happens, um, we don't have control over it, and we do the best we can to like survive, medicate, get through it, forget about it, keep it moving, um, and often don't have the resources that we need to really address it. And so with that, I want to want to take a quick break and talk more about that when we come back. You are listening to From Our Perspective, Voices of the Directly Impacted here on Justice Radio with Marian Anderson and Craig Williams. Today, we're talking with Nikki Butler about her experiences of incarceration, the circumstances leading up to her incarceration, 
and the impact that those experiences have had on her life since her release. Thanks for joining us, Nikki. Before the break, you know, we were talking about some of the traumas that you had had endured and some of the circumstances in your life that really caused a lot of harm and and how you coped with those things. And I and I have a a, a question for you about resources and and what was it that you needed that wasn't accessible to you, that wasn't available to you, that that maybe could have been beneficial rather than turning to what you knew, right? You knew the life of drugs and hustling in the streets and and you sort of grew up in that. But I'm, I'm wondering if you have thoughts about what might have been beneficial that could have potentially supported you in, in another path. Well, I truly think that um, a support system, like cause I don't have that from my family and then, you know, all my friends were using um, so I didn't really have a support system or anyone to like believe in me. I didn't have access to medical. I didn't have access to um, mental health treatment. And I remember the last time that I was sentenced, I literally begged them to let me be on drug court or probation instead of a straight sentence because to me, it was the third time I was going to prison. So like I, for some reason, wanted something to change. And I knew that maybe if I like got out and like I would have that support, maybe either like them assisting me or me being accountable until I could build a solid foundation. And they told me no, that I wasn't eligible for either of those and just threw me in prison again. I just felt like a number. I I think I just needed somebody to like really support me and believe in me. I didn't have any resources. I didn't have any money to call home or to call these resources. I remember I had to come up with my own release plan um, the second time I left prison because I just, unfortunately, the caseworker that I was dealing with at the time like I don't know if she was overworked I don't really know her situation so I don't want to say it but I can say that I was failed I had to do all the footwork and it's really hard to do the footwork with collect calls or never being allowed to use the phone you know and a lot of people don't want to take those collect calls I wrote letters over and over and over again to try to like change things and it was really difficult to try to do that from the inside when you're around like I mean people inside became my family because you know my family um is is a little chaotic and um toxic so those people became my family but I also inside became institutionalized and everything that I knew like just changed I had a tough exterior so it's like made it difficult for relationships friendships like you know because you have a hard time trusting people and you're always heightened you know you think like because you always have to watch your back in prison and jails it's made it really tough I now have an apartment and stuff but like because of these, my actions, like I had to get an apartment that was super expensive because I could not get anything because of this X on my back. With my criminal background, I paid almost a thousand dollars in fees to get all these things like application fees and everything. And then finally I was able to get somebody to rent to me, but at a high rate. And I have to work a lot of hours because of this. So this is like the trauma from being in prison and everything has, even though like life's good for me, it's like had a lot of impacts on me. Um, 
I'm judged different places that I go. Um, it, it's just, it's been a huge trauma piece for me that I've been trying to recover from. Yeah. Thank you. I saw Craig came on the mic. Yes, go ahead, Craig. Yes, Nikki. Can you expand more on your road to recovery? Like when did that start? When did you hit rock bottom and said, I got to make a change? So I was out, um, I got sentenced to two and a half years in Maine. I was out on a stay for 30 days. I had a really bad blood infection. Um, I was in the hospital. I got, I convinced the courts to give me another 30 days for this um, antibiotic treatment. Um, as soon as they did, I, and I got the 30 days, I went down to Massachusetts again. And I had previously had um, warrants down there, but they were non-extraditable. I got pulled over and arrested. Um, so now I'm sitting in uh, Massachusetts prison and I'm detoxing pretty heavily. I was in the cell and um, I was I was going to hang myself. And I asked them for a piece of paper, a pen, envelope, stamp. I was going to write a goodbye letter because I was sick of living like this. And I'm like, I because I've been doing this for 13 years. I'm like, I cannot continue like this anymore. And, you know, I was left in my own feces, like in Massachusetts, it was very different than Maine prison. For some reason, I don't know if it was my higher power or what, but something they showed up and was like, um, we, we got to detox you at the hospital and not here. And then from then forward, I stayed sober, but I never said I wanted to. Like I said, even before that day, like when I get out, I'm going to get high, I'm going to sell drugs. I don't know if I knew how like truly close I was to like ending my life. I don't really know what it was, but it became like a huge turning point in my life. And there was lots of drugs in there and there was some in Maine and um, I got extradited from there and Maine and all together I had to do um, three years. I turned down those drugs and I like really sat down and internally was like, what can I change or do different this time? Um, I reached out to the sexual assault advocates. I reached out to all these things and started like healing from the inside out and I think that's what worked for me this time. And it, and that's, I think, the only thing that worked for me was I actually started dealing with these feelings instead of just numbing them. And, you know, incarceration, unfortunately for me, didn't teach me anything. And, like, I just kept doing the same things over and over again and thought I was becoming a better criminal because I had more connections. And, you know, like, I was told to do things differently this way and that way. And so like, I was just sick of living like that. And I think that's where my bottom was in a, in a cell in Massachusetts, um, detoxing pretty heavily. And then things just changed for me. It's a pretty powerful story. That's like solid testimony, not necessarily to give any credit at all to the system, but like to yourself, right? Like I'm not hearing at, at any point in time where your needs were met during- no your experience of incarceration, but that you just wanted something different and you were willing to do whatever it took to have that, even if it meant like being vulnerable and reaching out for help. Right. And I think, you know, that really speaks to sort of the topic that we, that Catherine and Leo talked about last week. And they had, um, you know, a couple of guests on that were really talking about uh, Eric, uh, Eric Maynard, I think, was was uh, talking about tribal court, right, and how they use wraparound services, essentially, to address behaviors in individuals who may find themselves in the position of being in tribal court. 
and how, you know, it really takes a village, but unless a person sort of gets to the root causes of the behaviors, uh, nothing changes, right? And the only way to do that and to do that safely is to like have support, to have community, to have people believing in you and supporting you and like being willing to show up on your behalf and walk alongside you through it, right? Which is like the opposite of what this system does. It like takes you from the people that you have. It isolates you. It doesn't give you anything you need to actually be like accountable or make changes that are beneficial by by having access to resources like like sexual uh, violence advocates or, you know, um, folks who are working on affordable housing or just whatever the case may be, substance use or mental health or all of these other things like there's such a lacking inside those walls, you know, so I, I really appreciate you owning where you are today and like finding whatever it was inside you to find the motivation, the drive, the determination to like change things for yourself, even though like maybe in spite of even not having the things you needed to do that, you know, it's, it's incredibly insane that we continue to utilize this system that we know causes harm and does not actually affect positive changes that we want to see in our communities. Um, and I just real quick wanted to touch back with Craig. Craig, considering your use of the term rock bottom, I know that's a thing that is often used in 12-step recovery programs. And there's this belief, this societal belief that people have to hit a rock bottom in order to do something different. But I have to argue with that, uh, with that logic, because I think that, you know, if we're wrapping each other in a sense of community and love with support from people that care about us and that we have access to our basic needs being met and we have access to resources that will help us thrive in terms of, you know, mental health and, and substance use and housing and transportation and, and employment and all of these other things that nobody ever has to hit rock bottom, right? Nobody actually has to get to the point where they're desperate enough in their circumstances to like relent to the idea of unaliving themselves or relent to the reality of sitting in their own feces and framing him. Like these are things that no human being should ever have to experience. And so I just wanted to touch on that for a minute. But Craig, what are what are some of your thoughts about how folks navigating the system are impacted once they're released, right? Because the topic of this episode is like any sentence is a life sentence. And and I find that to be true for myself, but I want to hear your thoughts about it real quick, Craig, before we kick it back to Nikki and wrap up. About release, I, I wanted to touch on, I wanted to ask, ask Nikki about that aspect too, like uh, reintegrating back into society. So my thoughts on reintegrating it's it's still we still need resources there's a lot of organizations that are falling short there's there's a lot of organizations out there but there's no real help because i i didn't like you said i didn't hear not one time where nikki's needs were met i identify with you when you said you was ready to hang up i've been real vocal lately with sharing my my aspect me sharing my experience of thinking those thoughts or actually trying to put some action behind it i've never really shared with anybody but I, I commend you for sharing that at, in this space and and for listeners so um for y'all out there that that are listening um it gets better i know it might sound cliche 
but it most definitely get better. And Nikki is um someone that is a, uh, is a champion of that. You know, before I was living to die, now I'm actually dying to live. Yeah, Nikki, me too. You know, I, I, I heard you both say that, you know, it gets better. And I think sometimes that is true and, and sometimes that is not true. And I think it largely depends on what we have available to us, who we have available to us, the support that we're receiving, our needs being met. I'm so thankful that you're here with us today and that, you know, you're out here thriving and that you're showing up to support other folks uh, who are going through it. Craig, you got any last any last words? Nah, just thank you, Nikki. I really appreciate you for coming through, sharing your story with us. Peace. All right, y'all. Join us next week. Uh, and we'll hear Linda Small and Mackenzie Kelly in Creating Windows, Not Bars here on Justice Radio uh, when they unpack the social stigmatization of children of incarcerated parents, uh, their families, and justice-impacted people. But in the meantime, uh, please check out Maine's Free Her campaign at the dash council dot us forward slash free her where you can sign up join us in this movement in this work show your support as we learned today uh so many of us need that support so with that i want to give a special thanks to blues man samuel james for his gift of music that opens and closes each episode in our series we'll be back next month <laughs>